1: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley in Brighton at the Labour Party Conference doing the Times Radio show uh, live in the exhibition centre. You can listen to me live from 10 till 1, wherever you get your radio from DAB, Smart Speaker, uh, Times Radio app, and so on. Uh, But today on the podcast, we bring you the best bits. And I have to say, crucially, I can bring you the answer to the question that everyone is asking. What does Keir Starmer have for his breakfast? I collared him over breakfast this morning, and this is what he had to say. So Keir Starmer, talk me through your breakfast. Fresh fruit, a little bit of fish, a little bit of cheese. Fish and cheese. <laughs> fish and cheese, look at that. I'm this not is sure gonna about catching that. On. It's going to be catching Is that, is, that a, is that a new thing? <laughs> We're changing labor. Fish and, <laughs> fish and cheese. <laughs> okay, good to see you. Cheese and fish. Oh, I'm not sure about that either. There was sort of kippers as well, and sort of sliced Uh, Square of cheese, Swiss cheese, very peculiar. Anyway, uh, all morning we were asking people to send in their worst uh, breakfast they'd ever had. Nothing really topped that. Right, anyway, coming up on today's episode, in our big thing, I've been speaking to Tony Danker, the Director-General of the CBI. Uh, So that's coming up in just a moment, getting his take on uh, the state of the economy, but also uh, what should we be doing about these fuel uh, protests. However, uh, we kick off first with our columnist panel Uh, joining me live in... Brighton. It was uh, Jane Merrick from the i and Red Box editor Patrick McGuire. Have you ever woken up with a, with a kebab on your lap, Patrick? <laughs>
2: uh, probably at some point. <laughs> uh, no, I tell you exactly what I woke up with. Fairly, like, scarily recently, actually. Um, uh, like a full box of 20 chicken nuggets (laughs) Uh, McDonald's chicken nuggets other brands are available of course Uh, and uh, yeah they were stone cold and you know what I ate every single (laughs) one Jane your weirdest breakfast
3: well I feel a bit weird because I I just eat Weetabix but I once had a sausage roll and Ned Miliband gave me a funny look because it wasn't warmed up does that, does that count I as we Labour? It probably,
1: it probably does count, not least given that he is not a man to judge other people's uh, exactly. pork-based eating <laughs> uh, requirements. And uh, just to let you know, uh, in the next hour, we will, we will bring you news of what Ed Miliband was eating for breakfast, because if that's not what people want... It uh, better
3: be a sausage roll.
1: Well, well, we'll have to wait and see, Jan. I can't, I'm not giving anything away. I'm not giving anything away. Uh, well, let's actually let's do what we're actually supposed to be here to be uh, talking about. Let's talk, look at the news. and. Jane, there's, there's always a slight danger with party conference season in general. The, uh, lots of political journalists descend on a place, and then there's another story going on somewhere else.
3: Yeah, because two years ago, the last time Labour were meeting in Brighton again, we had the Supreme Court ruling, and everyone had to race back. And I think oh, there was, of
1: course, th- yeah, we all we all got to leave early. Yeah,
3: I think there were two journalists left here, and everyone was <laughs> running for the. Um, Things, think so, yeah, so poor Labour. Um, but, I mean, they still need to have their round, don't they, so they can get that out of the way whilst <laughs> attention is elsewhere. Uh,
1: but, um, Patrick, where would we... I suppose the question is, if with the, the, the fuel crisis, where would we all be if not here? Just in
2: Westminster talking about empty petrol stations. Just in an empty Westminster talking about empty petrol stations, yeah. I do, but I, do, I, I, you know... To what extent is this... Anyway, you raised the, raised it with the RSC man before. To what extent is it our fault for talking about it? <laughs> it's a huge story and it keeps getting huger because it's the only thing that's on the news. But anyway... And, and so we are, we
1: are now in the point in a crisis, Jane, where the army are being sent in. You know that the story, you know, is slightly running out of options when... Uh, every paper is briefed at the army are going to be sent in.
3: Yeah, and it's obviously quite serious. I mean, on a serious point, this supply chain issue has been bubbling under the water for about four weeks, end of August, I think people were talking about the, the HGV shortage because there, were not, there was not enough food on, on the shelves in supermarkets. So really, why has the government spent this long actually thinking about putting these visas in place. They're not going to be ready for weeks. So, yeah, it looks a bit chaotic.
1: It's interesting. I've interviewed Tony Danker from the uh, CBI, uh, which is coming up later on, and, and he sort of makes this point that the, the, the problem is the government, when these crises come along, the instinct of the government is to say, no, everything's fine, we're not going to do anything. Mm. And, you know, industry groups raise the alarm and all that. And then, and then it reaches sort of proper crisis point. <laughs> and then they sort of then they start picking up the phone and saying, okay, what do we need
2: to do? It's like, well, we told you what we needed to do three months ago yeah it's really interesting Jane makes an important point that this has been building under for ages I remember I, I remember exactly where I was where I found this out because um, uh, I was in the pub uh, it won't surprise you dear anyway and I got a message on my phone from a, um, from a source in Whitehall who said I'm at a meeting of a thing called the Civil Contingencies Secretariat and I was like oh that sounds scary he's like yeah uh, you know we don't have any truck drivers and um, this was in June and in you know we're going to have to change the immigration rules. That's what we're talking about right now. And, you know, there could be food shortages, medicine shortages. We're not going to be able to have people to drive toxic waste across the country. You know, so it's going to be some, you know, crazy apocalyptic. And I said, well, you know, uh, there, there was a small story appeared in the next day's Times, which I've been meaning to tweet. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the classic, I told you so. But that's the, that's the striking thing. I thought, But it's oh, interesting
1: because okay. actually um, the caricature of some of this was people were thinking, well, the government
2: haven't done anything, they've been completely... But so, behind the scene, Whitehall was aware of... This Whitehall was packaging. aware, and, and the civil contingency secretary, not to get too techy, is like, it brings together uh, all the, you know, departments that would have to deal with the domestic crisis. But the interesting thing was, I think where these meetings were, you know, hit a wall, as they have within Cabinet, is the easiest lever, the quickest lever to pull... Uh, you know, they were discussing the meeting and we have seen since. The instinct of a lot of people on Whitehall and in industry is to look at it and say, well, hang on, we need EU Labour back. And I think the top line of the story we wrote in the Times was ministers are poised to relax post-Brexit migration rules to let lorry drivers in. And obviously that's only just happened because there are so much the, the debate within the Conservative Party and within government on that is actually quite quite complicated. Jenny, in terms of Brexit, like, as soon as you insert the B word into this...
1: Mm it just reignites the battles of of BBC's, and it feels a bit like the government is so hamstrung by the idea of its ideological position that taking back control meant essentially shutting the borders to lots of workers. Uh, And they're having to... they seem to have got themselves in a position that, that letting more lorry drivers in is a sort of admission of defeat or so, in some way. And the Labour Party doesn't really want to get involved either because they don't want to reopen their old, you know, wounds of Brexit. But it feels to me like the, government, the country and business have moved on. They're just like, we just want some lorry drivers. And the whole point of taking back control is we now have control, so use that control to bring in some lorry drivers.
3: Yes, exactly. That, exactly. That. That's the whole point. That You can admit you can sort of turn on the taps, turn off the taps when you want. That is the whole point of taking back control. And it's almost like the government is fighting shy of Brexit just because it doesn't want to have to say, oh, actually, freedom of movement is a good thing. I mean, they've pointed out that there is a a European-wide shortage of lorry drivers, but it's just that the Brexit for us is the extra pressure on the system of an already quite serious global crisis.
1: How significant politically do you think this will be, Patrick? I mean, we've got the Tory
2: party conference next week. I mean, we, well, it's possible lots of people might not even be able to get there if it carries on like this. It's all, yeah, Well, yeah, it's all about timing, isn't it? Uh, there's a there's a line in this piece by Steve Swinford, that says something like, you know, uh, the petrol station association thinks well, up to 90% of petrol stations could run dry in the coming days. Now, say if we go into, if we all arrive in Manchester on Sunday, by train, obviously, not by coach or car, and the fuel, you know, that... Uh, uh, prediction has come true, then obviously the political context of Boris Johnson in that, in that scenario is very, very difficult. And at that point, you know, we're in the lull where nobody has any petrol, you're training the soldiers to drive the green goddesses or whatever, uh, and there's nothing Boris jo- there's nothing else Boris Johnson can do in that, in, in that scenario.
1: And particularly, Jane, we've, we, we, we've seen, well actually, with the insulate Britain people, you know, blocking the motorways and the impact on people's health and that sort of thing, once we get into a situation where ambulances can't get fuel, we only need one story about how uh, someone didn't get to hospital because there wasn't an ambulance because they didn't have any fuel, and that suddenly becomes you know that that massively escalates this this as well.
3: Yeah, no, I mean I was a reporter in the northwest in the, during the two thousand fuel crisis, and I remember actually then that the, the Blair government and Shell nationally were saying, "Oh, it's fine, it's fine. We've got enough, we've got enough petrol to last us till um, next week." but actually on the ground people were saying actually we're about to run the north is about to run out of fuel in about 12 hours and they had no idea back in london and it's really difficult this is not just about you know someone trying to get their their son to a cricket match on sunday and they you know they need to queue this is a, there is going to be a real knock-on effect of food being able to get through of as you say hospital um staff being able to get to work it's just going to ripple and i think the idea in the in the time story today it says that the government thinks you know the panic buying will will die off in a couple of days well actually if they if they do get the army in and they do refuel the stations what's going to happen everyone's going to start panic buying again (laughs) it's madness you're going to you're going to need to convene cobra by i think tomorrow and i think we're going to be in a really serious position by the weekend
1: and actually you talking about you know the situation outside london the, the sort of westminster class View of petrol, like they've mm. never the sort of Westminster bubbles never really understood why George Osborne never wanted to put up petrol prices. Yeah, it does because happen. nobody in London drives, and everyone outside London has a car, and this is like this is this is how you get to work, this is how you yeah. visit your family. You know, this is um, so crucial. And Jane you talked about the, the fuel crisis back in uh, what 2000s That was the only time that the Tories under William Hague got got ahead of Tony Blair. I mean, ultimately. Tony Blair still won in 2001 with almost exactly the same size majority but it can have a massive political impact.
3: It can. I mean it's, it's about confidence and trust in are we 48 hours from anarchy, most of the time we're not but I think at that stage on that Friday going into the weekend and the petrol station running dry it really felt like we were and Tony Blair realised that but probably about two days too late.
1: Patrick, your sense here in Brighton, is the Labour Party making the most of this crisis?
2: It's a very good question. If you speak to people around Keir Starmer, they will say, uh, look, we had to have this fight over... can't believe I'm in in a conversation about, you know, are we 48 hours from scavenging for food uh, or, you know, getting our push bikes out of the garage. I'm now talking about the Labour Party rule. But anyway, they thought that, you know, okay, we've got this out of the way. We've we've literally boxed off the internal debate now. Now we can talk about... um, now, in, a, you know, in an ideal world, you'd have a leader who could then turn to face the country and say, look at this bunch of clowns, you can't get any petrol, aren't I a plausible alternative candidate for Prime Minister? The problem, even people close to Keir Starmer say, we, ne- we don't know whether he's capable of capitalising on that situation. Like, the internal stuff has got through without a hitch. Now really, you couldn't ask for a better political context in which to sell yourself to the country as an alternative Prime Minister. But the live question is, Keir Starmer's has done the back room stuff. Can he move to the front room and be, you know, an engaging party host, as it were, to push that metaphor to its limit? But, <laughs> uh, uh, and, the, and the question is, don't know, you know, we might see a, a Keir Starmer seize the moment on Wednesday when he speaks. Well, we is, there, is
1: there a case, Jane, for doing a sort of David Cameron, uh, I'm just trying to think what it was, sort of the financial crisis, you know, appearing, uh, is there an argument for saying Keir Starmer should appear on the conference stage? This afternoon, actually, Jeremy Corbyn did it too in the two years ago. You know, tear up the agenda, appear on the conference stage, offer Boris Johnson all the support you know he needs in order to get a grip on this crisis. Let's convene Cobra. You know, really throw the story. You know, put himself. Part of the job of the opposition is either create your own news, which they're struggling to a bit, (laughs) apart from calling people scum. So insert yourself. You know, the other alternative is to find the big story and insert yourself into it.
3: Yeah, I think that's completely right. I mean, he should do that. He should say today, take the stage, and say, "You need to convene Coba. This is really serious." I and mean, I think Patrick's completely right. They need to have their they needed to have their internal battle. You can't get to the next election without having this this out and having and clearing up and trying to get to unity. But in 2024 or whenever the election is, what are people going to remember about the autumn of 2021? They're not going to be remembering that Labour were having a row about its rule book. They will be remembering this moment and this yeah. crisis. Is Keir Starmer in that moment? Yeah. He has to be. He has to make himself in the moment.
1: Um, Patrick, you and I bumped into someone last night who was positing the theory that this, this is a, a, so far a hugely successful conference for Keir Starmer compared to previous Labour conferences which, which do get, you know, delayed or, uh, you know, he's got through what he needed to get through. If you can land some decent policies this week, it's all looking very positive. Yeah, sorry, just when you said
2: we met someone last night, I had to really, I had to really think. Uh, well, you, you had a long night, Patrick, you met lots of people. I did, yes, I did, I did. I did. <laughs> uh, some of the members of the Labour Party. <laughs> uh, yes, and I, I, I'm, I'm quite seduced by that theory, actually, that we've got three days of conference left, uh, or two and a half or whatever, and Keir Starmer has put the rule changes that he wanted to make to bed with you know a bit of fuss, but... You know, it's all gone. It's, all, it's happened now. Uh, and, you know, if you look at past Labour leadership conferences, you know, this time two years ago, Labour was still reading from Corbyn's most senior aide had resigned. Uh, they would tried and failed to abolish Tom Watson. You know, <laughs> you look at Ed Miliband, uh, you know, a similar rousing under Ed Miliband, forgetting a, a whole paragraph of his conference speech, i.e., the most important one on the deficit. So far, on its own terms, this has been a successful conference, and that's why you know last night you saw Keir Starmer's entire team, you know, strutting around like the PGs and Saturday Night Fever <laughs> in, the, in the Hilton Hotel bar because they thought you know job done. But the important thing, as you know, as we've been saying, Keir Starmer now, Keir Starmer now has to say, this is me. I'm the alternative prime minister. But.
1: And, and capture the nation's imagination, actually, in a way he hasn't really yeah, done you, it so far, you, But Jane. you
2: require political nails for that. Aren't yeah, yeah. It? It's not immediately clear, has it? Okay. Jane?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we still have two and a half days to go. Anything could go wrong. We could have a complete <laughs> disaster before his conference. <laughs> That's the
1: spirit. I'm trying <laughs> to posit the idea it's the greatest Labour conference ever. And you're, 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 you're like, well, still, there's still plenty of time for it to go wrong.
3: <laughs> I think it'd be fine. I mean, really, Labour has to hold its nerve. Because, actually, it is about what, it, what is Labour saying about the fuel crisis now? Everything else is kind of a sideshow. It's messy. It's fine. You need to have the mess to get to the point where you've got unity.
1: And does he go after Jeremy Corbyn in his speech? There was a sort of strange tweet uh, that he put out overnight, uh, Keir Starmer, sort of saying that he'd drawn a, uh, a line under it or turned the page on a difficult chapter in the in the Labour Party's history. Is there a point in his speech where he he does, does a kinnock?
3: I, do, I don't think he needs to. I don't think he needs to mention Jeremy Corbyn. I don't think he needs to kind of stoke that wasp's nest of, of inflaming the left. I think he just needs to rise above that. He needs to be the Prime Minister in waiting. Yeah. As Patrick says, he's got, the, he's got the internal stuff out of the way. He needs to show what he's going to do t- if he were Prime Minister, and that's not really about having a fight with your predecessor.
2: You Patrick? No, I agree. Uh, uh, right. Like That the internal stuff has passed. Yeah. Shows that Keir Starmer is ultimately quite good at party management. The bits of the party where the left are still in control have been put back in their box for now. So why would you risk as Jane says you know, kicking the hornet's nest inflaming that row again for the sake of you know, a few headlines you know, here today gone tomorrow headlines also you know, Neil Kinnock uh, was many things uh, and one of them is he was very good at or, uh, oratory uh, you know, despite the Welsh windmugs stuff much better public speaking than Keir Starmer can you imagine Keir Starmer you know, the voices go up the octave you know, the, the analogy I used on this radio station a couple of weeks ago was Paul Heaton from the House Martins uh, <laughs> but sort of like less tuneful um, yeah, nobody wants to hear Keir, Channel Kenner.
1: Jane Merrick and Patrick McGuire Then, of course, you can get Patrick in your inbox every morning if you're a Time subscriber. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...
1: right up next it's my interview with the CBI chief Tony Danker good morning it's great to be here and oh, what a lovely day it is it's outside <laughs> it's absolutely grimmies. I can't quite work out what happened because when I arrived yesterday it was boiling and yeah, now you,
4: there's a bit of a coincidence really isn't think, there do you think well that's I think is. you arrived yeah and then and the weather's
1: turned didn't want to say a dark cloud a dark it cloud is. has descended now explain what are you as the director general of the CBI doing at, at the Labour Party conference
4: well I was asked Matt now look I think it's it's very very important Uh, that the Labour Party and business relationship is restored, renewed, Uh, really interested in uh, Rachel Reeves' speech today, really interested in Keir's speech and the pamphlet that he wrote, Uh, and really interested in moving on from what wasn't a great period in labour business relations to a better one.
1: In in his essay, Keir Starmer talked about uh, resetting the relationship with business, business as a force for good. Uh, He said, I mean, that That shouldn't seem like a sharp move in policy, but from your point of view that is, compared to what came before under Jamie Corbyn.
4: Yeah, look, I I hate to get a, a bit philosophical, but I think the existential question always about labour and business is whether or not labour sees business as a force for good, a force for delivering a better society, better economy, or whether or not labour sees business as the problem. And I think that Keir is signalling very clearly, no, he sees business as part of the solution to the policies that Labour believe in. I obviously think he's right. I think a Labour party that's trying to build a better, fairer economy that doesn't have business at the heart of that is missing the most obvious truth about economics. So uh, I'm pleased. I think it's a good direction to travel.
1: And what about some of the specifics of what we've seen? Rachel Rees announcing a plan to scrap business rates. Is that the sort of thing that your members will be pleased about?
4: Listen, that's very big news. I mean, I think if you were to ask most businesses in the country their number one issue, they'll tell you it's business rates. They think that business rates is a complete uh, crusher to investment, to a better net zero world, to good high streets. It's probably top of the list of things that our members talk to us about. So fair play to Rachel. I think that she's hit on an issue that will be incredibly well received by business. And are you clear about what would be there instead? No. (laughs) No. But uh, look, I think obviously we'll hear a bit more about that today, I would think. But maybe it'll take the next uh, few months or years to really pan that out. But I, look, I think the government has failed to recognise uh, the business rates challenge. Labour has recognised it, and uh, look, every business up and down the country, every mayor of every high street up and down the country, every green campaigner knows that business rates is a problem. The government say it's not. Rachel says it is. So yeah, listen, that's that's a good start. Is it the sort
1: of thing? Because obviously, there's an awful lot of policy gets announced at the party conferences. Yeah. Um, not all of it necessarily noticed. From your point of view, is the the policy of scrapping business rates the sort of thing that would move the dial uh, politically amongst your members?
4: Yeah, I think so. It depends what you mean, move the dial politically. But I think that, yeah, I think people turn around and go, right, this is a party uh, that's listening to business in the first case. And also is getting pretty pragmatic and practical about, you know, the economy of every high street in the country. And what about um, tax? And,
1: the, you know, there's lots of language about people with the broadest shoulders. And uh, even in uh, Keir Starmer's uh, essay, he talked about business was expected to contribute to c- communities and society, that sort of thing. Are you clear about what the tax burden on business would be under a
4: Labour government? No. But, uh, look, the tax burden on business under a Conservative government is currently pretty high. Uh, so it will be interesting to see uh, if Labour are suggesting that, or if, in fact, what they're really talking about is personal wealth taxes. So, listen, we're, we're all ears on that one. But I think uh, if any party, uh, including the government, is betting their the sort of policy and economic future on yet more increases to business taxes after the last six months, I think that's deeply problematic and uh, not very pragmatic either. So let's talk about the
1: business relationship with the Conservatives. Traditionally... Yep more aligned with business than the Labour Party. Yeah, yeah. But we've got a Prime Minister who famously wanted to F business, yeah. uh, and like you said, all of the... Well, it's a sort of slightly schizophrenic thing, isn't it? On the one hand, you've had the last 18 months, the Chancellor's put a lot of money into uh, both workers but also sort of business support, while the overall message is, seems to still be quite antagonistic towards business, is that fair?
4: Well, look, I think there are moments like we've had in the last week or two where I think there is a bit of that instinct, which is probably the hangover from the Brexit campaign. But actually, in practical terms, I think this government's starting to get a lot more pragmatic about business. Uh, You know, relationships between business and the government are definitely improving. Uh, I think the current, you know, lorry visa, uh, temporary visas uh, for lorry drivers shows that I think they're getting a bit more pragmatic despite the rhetoric. So, no, I'm pretty optimistic about that. But, you know, the complicated relationship between uh, this Conservative Party and business, I'm sure we'll get into more next week.
1: Uh, and How do you think the CBI is viewed? Because having been the sort of go-to voice of business, yeah. Brexit definitely shifted that. You know, Conservative MPs would have normally been banging the drum for business instead of standing up at the House of Commons and bad-mouthing the CBI. That's sort of yeah. Have you had
4: to do some work to try and repair that? Yeah, but look, if I'm honest with you, I think both sides have been keen to move on. I mean, it wasn't just us saying, let's move on. I think the government was saying, let's move on. And actually, it really began with once it looked clear the TCA was going to pass, the Prime Minister did a really good call uh, with a few hundred business leaders where he basically said, look, it's time to move on and build a more competitive, dynamic British economy that can win the future, etc., etc. And I have to tell you, I agree 100% with that.
1: Um, When it comes to a dynamic economy, I mean, the whole economy seems to be grinding to a halt because of this shortage of lorry drivers. How big a threat to the economy is the fact we literally don't have enough people to deliver food, petrol, whatever it might be?
4: Yeah, look, uh, Matt, I think that is real. Uh, You know, every sort of three months we uh, round the houses and we talk to all our regional committees up and down the country. We take the pulse. We've just finished that in the last two weeks. Uh, And I'll be honest with you, the mood has taken a turn for the worse. I I think that if the businesses I spoke to in August, everybody is pretty optimistic. Uh, They were in a very strong investment mindset, as we call it in my trade. Uh, And actually that's changed in the last few weeks. I think we've gone from uh, growing to coping. Everybody is very obsessed with the challenges of the next few months. And much as I like to talk to them about the opportunities of the next 10 years, this stuff is real. And as you say, It's not just about lorry drivers. It's not only just about labour shortages. It's about logistics and supplies and energy and living with the virus if another wave comes back. So I think, yeah, businesses' heads are down a little bit. uh, And that, almost more than any of the specific issues, is what we need to tackle. It's also why we said to the government, look, let's get a sort of cobra for the recovery going. Because as you see today, as you watch the government now come to terms with managing the crisis, they are sort of rolling their sleeves up and working through it bit by bit, starting to get more businesses around the table. I really welcome that because over the summer when we were warning about this, there was sort of a bit of a political standoff. I think people thought we're trying to fight an old battle. We're really not. This is about getting the economy going again and get the economy growing again, which is, I think, what the Chancellor's going to want to talk about in October.
1: How, how serious do you think it is that, you know, we had such a terrible time with lockdowns and the impact they had on the economy, just as things started looking like they were coming back? I mean, are we talking... Do we see businesses starting to go under? Do we sort of split, see, you know, percentage points off GDP as a result of this short? term? Look
4: I, look, I think it's far too early to make that kind of uh, judgment. What I think we do see is... Uh, Look, I I was really optimistic in the summer because we had a very we have a lot of pent up ambition and investment in the economy, actually, not just Covid like everybody has around the world, but Brexit as well. A lot of businesses that didn't take big decisions for almost five years who I think are ready and raring to go. Now, I still think and hope that stuff will come through. But at the moment, you know, there aren't many uh, you know, executive committee tables debating growth. They're debating how to get through what looks like a really rocky few months. It's part of the problem that big businesses,
1: actually quite a lot of businesses with CBI members, over the last 10, 15 years, have outsourced a lot of their logistics. And So there hasn't been really anyone thinking about the, the overall picture of the, you know, the full chain. And that. Do you think that is a problem, that it's all sort of been outsourced... Uh, Wages have been driven down and now suddenly there's a problem that we don't have enough drivers.
4: Well, I think there's a couple of things in there. The the idea of outsourcing, I'm not sure I agree with that. I think, you know, at most company roundtables, there's somebody managing those contracts and they care about it very much. Uh, And the logistics sector, actually, fair play to them. They've done an amazing job and they showed through the pandemic how critical they are to the country. Now, the issue about drivers and labour shortages, yeah, look, I think I'm very clear that in the long run, the government's right to try and push for, you know, a much more resilient, high skilled, high paid economy. Uh, and of course, we all need to try and work out what that means now. Our complaint, really, and businesses' complaint in the last few months is kind of like, yeah, we get that. But meanwhile, you know, it, I, I sometimes say the analogy is if you're, sit, if you're sitting in your lounge and the light bulb goes out, you can fold your arms and say we need new wiring. But actually, you need a new light bulb, right? And then you can think about the wiring. And I think that's what this labour shortages, driver shortage issue is about, which is, for goodness sake, let's get the economy moving again. Let's get drivers into the country. Uh, and then we can get on to the big labour market issues. And we don't disagree with the government about that direction of Trump. How much do you think a,
1: a lorry driver is worth? How much do you think we need to get used to paying a lorry driver?
4: Well, I'm not going to give you uh, specific rates. I'll let the market determine that, Matt. But look, I think uh, the truth about lorry driver pay over the summer is it's gone up massively. Uh, Now, what is its natural equilibrium is the big long-term debate. But the market's responding. The the real problem has been, you know, you can pay all you want, but you're... There's still only a limited number. There's still only a limited number, right? I like to say, I think it's great, quote, which is, you know, you can't make baggage handlers butchers overnight, right? And we need a lot of butchers in the economy, by the way. It's not just about lorry drivers, right? We haven't got people skilled butchers at the moment. So, yeah, listen, in the long run, wage markets, equilibrium for different professions is definitely a question. In the short run, that's not the issue. And what about,
1: I mean... It seems to me that taking back control meant having control to decide who didn't didn 't come into the country rather than saying nobody can come into the country yeah. and actually a smart immigration policy would have recognized what was going on months ago rather than waiting for this situation to to arise now. Do you worry that sort of the ideology of be, you know being obsessed with the net immigration figure or whatever is actually well, it, the ideology is going to end up basically damaging the economy.
4: Yeah, look, I, there's, there is a famous cliche, which is no battle plan survives first contact with the enemy, right? So we get the, the Conservatives' immigration policy, and I think it's now being tested, right? So in fairness to them, much as I think they're far too late in what they've done, I think what you're seeing is the immigration system they want up against the realities of a modern economy. And so let's hope that this is the first step in a much more pragmatic approach to using temporary visas whenever we have temporary shortages. And do you, in terms of the visas, the government's saying 5,000, Keir Starmer yesterday seemed to
1: be saying 100,000.
4: Do you have a sense of
1: the well, industry? It's, what, it's how probably many we somewhere need to... in between. Isn't it? <laughs> I, look,
4: I think also, for me, the bigger issue actually is the three months or six months. I think talking to uh, people in the industry overnight, uh, I think they actually think the six, the six month is a better window than three months. By the time you've got around to getting this sorted, you're not going to have people in for very long. You're going to be trying to rush new drivers that are UK based onto the roads. I actually think they should take a look at six-month visas. And then as for the quantum, we'll see what happens when the window opens for application. The Home Office will have that data. And so I hope they'll continue to be pragmatic and tweak it up if it needs to be tweaked up. And In terms of um, the impact this particular
1: crisis had on relations between business and the government, the road haulage association leaking this meeting uh which seems to have you know escalated the whole
4: thing is that is that affected the relations between business and government well i am clearly not going to be drawn on that one matt but what i will say look what's regrettable about this which is different actually to the pandemic is i think government sort of closed the doors and, and banged heads together and had a political discussion about the right way forward I think, therefore, they weren't really engaging enough with business to anticipate what was coming. I think we need to get into a mode, a bit like during the pandemic, where, you know, before the Chancellor launched the furlough, we all discussed how it could work, what wouldn't work, what would work. We need to get into that mode now with government over this stuff. You know, business are desperate to be talking to government about good decisions. And are they decisions. picking
1: up the phone to you and your members?
4: Yeah, but often too late, right? I think that, you know, the typical pattern is we raise these issues when they are starting to become clear. Government tries to resist and holds out. I mean, maybe this is government over the ages, right? And then when it gets to crisis level, you know, the phones get picked back up. I'd like us to get on the front foot, I'd like us to get around the same table and work together on, on what is now a pile-up of issues in the next few months. And what about the Labour Party, do they pick up the, the phone to the CBI now? Uh, we have good conversations from time to time, as you can imagine. Yeah, look, I think the dialogue is clearly better than it was, uh, and as coming back to the start of our discussion, you know, I think Keir and Rachel and Ed are thinking really hard about what's going to build a better economy, the economy obviously that suits their objectives, and they are engaging with business on. Well, Tony
1: Danker, I know you've got a busy day ahead. I'll let you venture out into this wet and miserable. Sh- should
4: we both go and do a Neil Kinnock along the beach? <laughs> the rainy, windy I- I beach. Think,
1: I think we went and did that. the very strong chance we swept out to sea and never seen again. So we'll leave it there. Tony Danker, uh, director general of the CBR. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Matt. That's so all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget, you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, ten till one on Times Radio, and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Gigi Palmer.